0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast
1: with your host, Evan Roberts. All right, everybody, let's get depressed. Another uh, depressing edition of Rico Bronia as the Mets follow up the three game embarrassment against Atlanta. By just your run-of-the-mill, lose two out of three to the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Mets have not won a road series since L.A. It has now been months since the Mets have gone on the road and won a series. So if you were hoping, the way I was hoping, certainly not expecting, but hoping that the Mets could somehow bounce back from what was the horrendous three-game sweep at the hands of the Atlanta Braves, you had another thing coming. That was certainly not going to happen. But what would happen in this series against Pittsburgh, which happened in the series against Atlanta, just not to the extreme extreme level, is that the Mets had a lead in every game of this series. The Mets scored first in every game of this series, and they walked away with one freaking win. And they give you signs yet again that this just may be a bad baseball team because they lost game one for a very different reason than they lost game three. But the bottom line is they find ways to lose in game one. They can't pitch in game three. They can't hit in game two. They actually do enough to win a baseball game, but they lose two out of three. They They're four games under 500 heading into the subway series against the Yankees. And I could certainly tell from the tone of Met fans, whether it's via Twitter or it's texting with friends, that we are at an all-time low right now. That the expectations that this team can somehow turn this season around is at the lowest it's been in a very, very long time. So we'll get to that. We'll preview the Subway Series. We'll talk about Buck Showalter's angry meeting and Steve Cohen finally opening up his mouth and addressing his frustrations and maybe his plans or lack thereof with this team off to a bad start. But let's take a look at this series. Game one on every level was a debacle. I mean, if you, if you thought they would come out and beat up old friend Rich Hill and Tyler McGill would give them a quality start and somehow the Mets would at least show the balls to bounce back from the worst loss of the season, which I think we'd all agree that game three against Atlanta was, if you thought they'd be able to do it, The pitching being so bad and the defense being so bad eliminated any shot of that happening because they score a run in the second inning on a clutch RBI single by Mark Vientos, which has us all very, very excited. And even after McGill gives that run right back by giving up a two-run double to, of all people, Austin Hedges with two outs, the Mets respond again. Francisco Lindor who was playing shortstop, we saw him DH on Saturday, but was in the starting lineup, batting cleanup at shortstop, hits a home run from the right side, and the Mets respond to the Tyler McGill hiccup. And then you had the third inning. And as good as the Lindor home run felt, the miscue by Lindor in the third inning on what should have been a double play was the absolute death knell of this game. And I'll give Lindor credit for this. After the game, he admitted it. After the game, he was down in the dumps and said, I cost my team the game. And he did. No shit. Of course you did. Look, that's not a defense of Tyler McGill or a defense of Zach Muckinhern and and whatever other crap we saw pitching-wise on Friday night. But again, think about where we are in this game. It's a 2-2 game. It's the third inning. And Carlos Santana, hits a ground ball to shortstop, which should be, the easiest double play to turn. is going to field it. He's going to step on the bag. He's going to throw to first, and the inning's going to be over, and it's going to be 2-2, top of the fourth inning. Now, obviously, Tyler McGill, who puts a country on base every time he pitches, could have very easily still gotten his ass handed to him in the fourth inning of this game. It could have still been a crooked number in the fourth inning, and the Mets could have lost the exact same way. I acknowledge that. It's not like I'm naive enough to think that somehow Tyler McGill was going to give them this great performance and the Met bullpen, which was going to have very few guys available anyway, was somehow going to get 18 outs. But nevertheless, your best defensive player, and he is, like we know how good Lindor can be defensively at shortstop, cannot make that mistake. And what made it worse was it was right after he hit the home run to tie the game. You're in the midst of this brutal losing streak. You've lost six in a row. This team can't do anything right. When they pitch well, they can't hit. When they hit, they can't pitch. And their defense, which had been a strength over the first few months of the season, has completely i mean, completely gone backwards. Their defense completely blows. Then you had Brett Beatty making an error. Or I'm sorry, Eduardo Escobar making an error. I don't want to put it on Beatty. He wasn't playing third base that day. (laughs) Eduardo Escobar made an error. They scored two unearned runs, but really all the runs should have been unearned. I know you can't assume a double play. I'm a scoring geek. I know that full well, but that inning should have been over. Tyler McGill's day completely changes, and the Mets day completely changes, and that's the problem. They can't make mistakes like this and just simply overcome them. They're not good enough. This isn't last year where they could make a little mistake and overcome it. So, before talking about anything else that happened that inning, the bunt hit by Bay, which turned into the Escobar error, the RBI single on the very first pitch by Josh Palacios, to what happened in the fourth inning after McGill gets the first two outs and he issues a two-out walk to McCutcheon, gives up a hit ahead of the count, and then Muckinhern comes in and blows up the place. All of that started because Francisco Lindor couldn't turn a routine double play. And while the offense did nothing after that, they were taken out of the game. I mean, it's 10 to two in the fourth inning. It really felt, and I tweeted it on Friday night. It felt like I was watching the 93 Mets and the 93 Mets is what got me into baseball. I know that sounds weird. How could the, the worst team money could buy. And that was their nickname, obviously get you into baseball? It's Cause I was nine years old. It was, I was figuring it out. I was going to the games with my dad. I was watching the games on TV. And I was a sucker. I was a sucker then. I'm a sucker now. And I watched every game of that 93 Mets team. And they had a lot of stars and a lot of big names. But boy, did they suck. And on Friday night, the Mets decided to put an exclamation point on this losing streak with an absolute dud. McGill stinks. The defense stinks. The offense goes away after the Lindor home run. Mock stinks. Tommy Hunter stinks in the eighth inning of this game. And at this point, I'm still watching. And I'll tell you why I'm still watching this game. I've got like a cheap excuse here. I spent the entire weekend watching every pitch of the Mets, but doing it on extreme delay, which I've always told you Friday night is like the biggest lock. I'm going to watch this game three hours later. And that was the case. I came home. Kids are up. We end up drinking, having a good time. Before you know it, I don't even know what time I started this game. actually forgot. Maybe it wasn't that late. It was like two hours late. I I don't remember. But because I was behind and I was able to fast forward, not the game, but just move quick, I kept watching. It's like there was a dead body on the side of the road and there was a burning car. And you know what people do? They rubberneck. They won't just drive away. Like, who wants to see a burning car and somebody dead lying on the side of the road? Nobody wants to see that, but y'all stop anyway. Y'all stare anyway. That's why there's traffic every freaking day. And that game on Friday night was the car on fire game. I couldn't look away. I couldn't stop. So when Tommy Hunter is giving up a bomb to Carlos Santana and a bop to Jack Sawinski, I keep watching. And even that ninth inning, which was actually kind of comical, they're down fourteen to two, and I'm like, why the hell not? And the Pittsburgh Pirates decided, you know what? Let's make this thing fun. They committed a bunch of errors. You had uh, what's his name, uh, the kid who's related to the football player, um, Smith Najigba, missing a fly ball in right field. And the Mets actually put this rally together to get it to 14-7. And I started at 14-7 after the RBI double by Giorme. I started counting. Like, okay, well, if they can get five more base runners, <laughs> they could bring the tying run to the plate. And I went back to that old thought I used to have. Boy, wouldn't this be a way to get the team going? They're down 14-2 in the ninth inning. They score 12 runs. They come back. But they didn't because they suck. The only good thing that came out of Friday night's debacle was it meant it was the end of Tommy Hunter because he got DFA'd. And it was emotional for everybody except Mets fans who were just excited. They were just like, great, new bot! There's a new human we can rip. There's a new guy around town that we can start to sour on in two and a half weeks. So John Curtis is back. So give it a week or two and we'll start MFing John Curtis. That'll happen. That's a lock. But just Friday was, I don't know if it's rock bottom. I guess it's not because the Mets won on Saturday. But then again, they lost on Sunday. But in terms of sheer embarrassment after the losing streak, after the series against Atlanta, to go to Pittsburgh and to be down 10 to 2 in the fourth inning really makes you reevaluate everything you think as a fan. And here's the other thing it makes you reevaluate. And I know he's your guy, Hoff. And I know they don't have a lot of options, but Tyler McGill stinks. And I've tried to be patient, but he puts countries on base every game. And even though Lindor stabbed him in the back with that error, I wonder how much longer they
2: could just trot Tyler McGill out there every five days. Yeah, but there's a problem. And this is the big picture with the pitching. Like, and, and and thank God, Tommy Hunter, you know, uh, listen, I love you, love to hate you, and thank God you're out of here, but there is no one else to bring up. We could sit there and say Tyler McGill leaves countries, but dude, there, there'd be someone else in the AAA that leaves galaxies. I mean, there's no one else available. Well,
1: you know what you would do? And I know this is a terrible answer, but it's similar to what we've talked about with the back of the bullpen where... You can get rid of Tommy Hunter. You can get rid of Zach Muck Hearn, You get rid of this guy, that guy. You're going to replace them with the same guys that we've watched. So in this case, it's Josh Walker and John Curtis. You're replacing them with guys that have already been up here. It's kind of the same thing. Who would replace Tyler McGill? Joey Lucchese. Who would replace Tyler McGill? David Peterson. I would say Mike Vassell would be a nice candidate from A, but two of his last three starts have been real bad. So A, I doubt the Mets would ever rush him, and B – he has not been pitching nearly as well as he used to, but it would be essentially Peaches changing the names on the Titanic. That's what it would be. It'd be, we've seen enough of McGill. All right, Joey Lucchese, come on back here. And maybe bide some time until Jose Quintana's back. And then who knows what you get from him? The guy's missed how many months. But it's not as if Lucchese or Peterson's the answer, Pete. It's just, all right, I'm sick of looking at Tyler McGill now. And that's what it would be.
2: Nah, no. listen, I, I get it. It's, it's very frustrating. The, pitch, the, 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 the pitching as a whole is so frustrating. I don't know what to do. Uh, we talked about the bullpen. And here's what it comes down to. And this is something that really bothered me from the get-go. And we still haven't done the podcast on who, what we, how we could have redone this whole offseason. But the fact is, you should not be picking up scraps at any spot. And that's what it feels like the Mets have done with certain things, with bench players, with bullpen, with the back of the rotation. It's all scrap players.
1: By the way, that podcast in which we reevaluate evaluate the offseason on the guys that everyone wanted them to go get or some guys wanted them to go get, this is a perfect week for it because the Mets have multiple off days. They play the Yankees Tuesday, Wednesday. We'll do podcasts both nights. We'll probably do a couple of drive homes, but we will throw in an extra podcast on that since the Mets have multiple off days. The, the the other concerning thing about this team, and I can't explain this, is why they're so bad defensively now. Because for the first two months of the year, they were an elite defensive team. And outside of Brandon Nimmo in center and Francisco Alvarez behind the plate, who when he catches, looks great back there, they have regressed everywhere defensively. McNeil's been shakier at second. We mentioned Lindor at shortstop. Whether it's Escobar or Beatty, their third-base defense isn't as good. Their outfield defense isn't as good, led by Starling Marte. I don't know what the hell happened to him. I mean, Starling Marte a year ago, and they mentioned this on the SNY broadcast over the weekend, whether it's the double groin surgery or it's another reason, Marte took such a quick move to right field and looked so good. Like, he made that transition seem flawless, like A-Rod to third base back in the day with the Yankees. He never missed a beat. And yet this year in right field, he's an unmitigated disaster. And what I think is going to be forgotten about in Saturday's game, a couple of things that should not be forgotten about, and we're not going to forget it on the Rico. Thank you, Kodai Senga. You were brilliant. I'll start there. Thank you, Francisco Alvarez. his 12th home run of the year with that insurance shot in the 8th. Thank you, Mark Canna, who had a great day offensively, batting ninth, driving in three runs. So I think I got the the thank yous out of the way. Robertson out of Vino, too. Pitching was great. Kodai was great. Bullpen was great. I mentioned the dudes offensively. Alvarez, Canna, Tommy Fan with a couple of hits. Fantastic. All right, now let's bitch. Let's bitch about the defense, and let's bitch about this manager. So the Mets in the fourth inning behind Kodai Senga commit two Absolutely brutal errors. And one of them is by a, a guy playing the field, Jeff McNeil, commits an error. That ground ball by Bay's got to make the play, then he's freaking out, he's having a hissy fit on the field when he can't make the play. And then the other error in the box score is for Luis Guillaume but no, 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 it's not for Luis Guillaume because Luis Guillaume actually didn't commit an error. It was a clear transfer. Okay, clear as day. There's a runner on first and one out. Hayes hits a ball to first base. Kana throws to second, and Guillaume, who is lightning quick, clearly makes the transition. The second base umpire, Will Little, says no. He didn't catch it. There's runners on first and third. Then let's get to our brilliant manager. Last year, our manager would go out and explain the rules to umpires. At least that's what we were told. This time, instead of calmly challenging the play and and by the way look it up is it not challengeable like am i missing something here instead of just challenging it buck runs out he doesn't argue by the way buck doesn't argue he comes out and has a conversation comes out and says what's going on so he has this conversation with will little and never challenges never challenges Derek Shelton, the manager of the Pirates thing, comes out to make sure, hey, there's no challenge because the 15 seconds have gone by. And there's no challenge. So I've got a massive headache because I am hours behind on DVR and I'm afraid to Google, is this a challengeable play? Because my fear, Pete, is if I I Google transfer play challenge, can you challenge it? Somehow the news info that's going to come back is the final score of the Met Pirate game. So I never do it because I'm so afraid. I've learned my lesson on how to DVR games and not get spoiled. But I'm, I'm losing my mind. Like, wait a second, Buck, 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 Buck. You went out to have a discussion with the umpires and you never challenged. And for the life of me, I thought that was the game. Because remember, the very next play is when Jihan Bey hits the heartache ground ball to McNeil, who can't make the play. And so now they're set up again with first and third tie game at one. And Kodai Senga, to his credit, and he was great on Saturday. And we walked four guys, which will drive people nuts. I get it. But he knows how to find his way out of trouble. And he did in that fourth inning when his defense and his manager basically told him, hey, you're on your own. Now, Brandon Nimmo bailed out Kodai Senga one inning earlier. I don't want to forget that. When Sengel walks the eight nine uh, the nine one and two hitters back to back to back, Connor Joe hits a ball that I thought's going off the wall, and Nemo makes a great play. So Sengel was great; he wasn't perfect, and he was certainly bailed out by that Nemo play. But in the following inning, he's bailing out his garbage defense and his manager, who I don't know what was going on. And then Pete, I this game's over. I watched the whole game. It's eleven o'clock at night because. Saturday, time with the kids. This is how you're able to remain being a good father, a good husband, and watch every second of the Mets. You'll watch a 4 o'clock game at 9.30 at night. That's when I started it. It was movie night. We were watching Wally, and when everyone fell asleep, because everybody passed out during Wally, dad went upstairs and said, let's get the scorebook ready, you know, because we're about to start this bad boy. And then I watched the game and I carried my children into their bed. And then I watched Buck's press conference because I needed to know, Buck, you genius, you brilliant man, how are you not challenging that? No one asked the question, or at least what SNY showed us. They never showed anybody asking a question about the non-challenge by Buck. That drove me nuts. And as soon as the Mets won the game, I realized this is going into the dustpan of this season. No one's going to care. No one's going to think about it. It's dead. So for all the criticisms Buck faces, and he faces a lot, some of it fair, some of it not as fair, this is a big one, but they won the game, so we all move on. But that drove me nuts. Like, it was a bad call. Giorme clearly was transferring the ball. I'm doing the transfer right now with my hands. And instead, Buck's going out there to have a cup of tea instead of challenging the play.
2: Yeah, listen, I had that same issue, the same argument. That uh, I was on air yesterday or this morning, I should say, and I, I again I had the same problem with him. And it, Buck is just too. It's like he doesn't. I don't know if he doesn't care if he's just lost his edge, but he does not look like the same man that was there last year. And right, everything went right last year f- for for the Mets, so it's different in that aspect. But it's just not the same. It, 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 it's just not. I I question everything he does now. I don't think he ever had
1: fire last year. I just want to point that out. Like, I don't remember Buck screaming and yelling or hollering, and certainly there weren't a lot of reasons, too. The Mets had a great year last year, so I don't think that part of him is necessarily different, but missing something is.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Because he didn't miss a lot last year. There weren't a lot of things that we walked away saying, hey, how'd you miss that? And not making the umpires take a look at that. Again, I mean, unless I am completely missing something, this is not a challengeable play. And if it is, I'm 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 stupefied by it because it certainly wasn't acknowledged on the broadcast. And when I looked for it, because I eventually did look for it, I never saw any evidence that it wasn't a challengeable play. It was just a miss. but. Look, Kodai Senga was great. I thought for a second, because remember, Senga finished this game by not allowing a base hit since the f- second inning. So Senga, who only allowed two hits in this game, allowed them in the first two innings. The last walk he issued was in the fourth inning. So in the fifth, sixth, and seventh, he retired everybody except for one guy who got on by an error. So I thought at 96 pitches, maybe I push him for the eighth. I thought about it because the Mets have the ability, and we'll spend more time on this later, later on in the pod, with the multiple off days coming up next week against the Yankees around the Yankee series, that they can really play with their rotation however they want. And if they want to give Kodai Senga an extra couple of days, they can. And it wouldn't be the worst thing. So when you know you can give a guy a few extra days, do you push them? Do you challenge them a little bit more? That's the way I viewed it. Would I challenge him? Now, at this moment, the Mets are up 4-1 f- uh, to because they added an insurance run in the eighth when Alvarez hit the home run. Heart of the order's coming up. I thought maybe this would be the time to do it at 96 pitches. Buck decided to not. He did his formula of let me use David Robertson against their better hitters and Robertson had a nice bounce-back game from the Thursday game against the Braves, gave up a leadoff hit, struck out back-to-back guys and got through the eighth, and then Adam Adivino came in and had a very clean one two three ninth inning. After the Mets added another insurance run in the ninth on the Marcana RBI double, and they won this game by a score of five to one. Coming into the game, though, I was a little perturbed at Mark uh, Mark Vientos not playing. Now, remember, Mark Vientos has had start and stop playing time since being recalled. With Alonzo now on the injured list, there's more opportunity for Mark Vientos to play every single day. The night before on the Friday game, he had an RBI single in the second inning. He drew a walk. He had a productive day. I wouldn't say it was a monster day. I wouldn't say it was an incredible day, but it was a nice day, especially that RBI single early, which you forget about because the Mets obviously gave up 14 runs. So I thought he had earned another start. Now, obviously, the decision Buck made not to play him worked out because Tommy Pham played left field, who's an option to sit. He had two hits. Mark Canna played first base. He was the mass RBI producer. He had a couple of doubles. So it worked. I want to I acknowledge that whoever would have sat instead of Vientos would have either been Mark Canna or Tommy Pham, especially because they wanted to give Lindor the half an off day, which I'm not complaining about, especially when he had the defensive miscue the night before. So I'm not even going to mention Guorme playing as something that was bad or an option because, I get it. Lindor hadn't had a backup shortstop on this roster for a few weeks. So you want to give him a clean up the mental health after making a brutal error the night before a game. I'm not going to scream about that. So it's really either FAM or Kana, and both guys were productive. The problem is it cannot be easy for this young player to have such start and stop playing time since being recalled. He doesn't get to play consistently. And even after a positive game on Friday night, it doesn't turn into a start on Saturday. And that was very frustrating. So the Mets win a game. That felt good. That felt nice. I said to my wife after she woke up, honey, I see sun now. The Mets won a game. Because here's the funny thing. I had a great Saturday playing with my kids, but there was like this little fog hanging over. And that fog is the Mets. Like, we had a great time. We were playing baseball. My oldest son had one of his friends over. We were playing baseball. We were playing basketball. We were on the swing. Me and my little guy were going down the slide. Like, it was such a, had a barbecue. Like, what an American day. What a great American day. Can't complain about it. But there was this tiny fog hanging over. Like, every time I wanted to say, oh, my God, this is the greatest day ever. And it was a great day. Eight and a half out of ten. There was that fog that met fog that hangs over. That's the problem with this team. Even when things are going well and other things, you think about this team and it'll just bring you down. It's been even affecting my jet love because Scherzer and Verlander has so crapped the bed that even when I saw Aaron Rodgers sitting there at the Tony Awards, and normally I'd be pumped up, look at my quarterback, he's out and about, he's having a good time. As I look into his eyes, I see Max Scherzer and I see Justin Verlander and I see Kevin Durant, and I'm like, this guy's going to disappoint me. He really is. I'm happy he's here, just like I was when KD was here, just like I was when they signed Scherzer. Same thing. But I'm looking into the man's soul, and all I can see, and it's not his fault he's done nothing wrong, all I can see is massive disappointment. Then we get to Sunday.
2: Big game. Big
1: game. Mets win a series. Two-game winning streak. It doesn't change everything. But it makes you feel a little bit better coming back to city for this five-game homestand against two teams, two franchises that everybody hates, the New York Yankees and the St. Louis Cardinals. Can they get to 32 and 34? Which is not good, but it's better than 31 and 35. Can they win a series against the Pirates, who, by the way, they may have to battle for a wild-card spot assuming we're lucky enough to be in a wild card race, which at this rate may not exist. Can they win a series against the team they're competing with for potentially a spot? You got Cookie Carrasco on the mound against Mitch Keller. And we get a nice little pitcher's duel to start. Carrasco gets through trouble in the first and second after putting leadoff guys on base. And the Mets break through. Jeff McNeil, of all people, who's had a, a quietly crappy season. Let's be honest about Jeff. You know, the batting average isn't horrible, 270, 275, but he never gets an extra base hit. And certainly that 275 average is 40 points below what it was last year. And so he's a singles hitter, hitting 275, not getting on base a lot, not driving the ball, not driving runs in, and he actually did drive a ball in when he put one into the seats in right field to give the Mets a one nothing lead. And Carlos Carrasco, it took him 30 seconds. I timed it. It took him 30 seconds in the fourth inning to give it right back when Jack Sawinski, who's been a pain in the ass the entire weekend, hits an absolute bomb off the foul pole in right field. Uh, one good thing about the home run off the foul pole, the discussion was brought up by Jet, who is six, not by me. What do you think he says, P? It's a trivia question for you because you've got kids who are learning baseball. What does Jet say and is confused by on the Jack Sawinski home run? But it's a discussion we all have to have. I had it with my dad. He had it with me. And if you don't know, just tell me. I'll tell you what it was.
2: Why is it fair if it hits the foul pole? You're my guy, Pete. You're my guy. You're damn right. That's exactly what it
1: was. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a discussion we all have to have right you're teaching your kid baseball they're thinking they're understanding it and then jack shawinski has to put one off the foul pole and gary Cohn has to scream fair home run dad 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 i don't get it dad dad i don't get it and here's the best part we really don't have a good answer like none of us do like what the hell's our answer the only answer you could have is the whole whataboutism game, which I hate, which is, well, we drive on a freeway and we park on a driveway. <laughs> but that doesn't answer the question. That's all true. But why, if it hits the foul pole, is it not foul? So I explained to Jet that there are many an announcer, and I've done it too, where we refuse to call it a foul pole we call it the fair pole. And he's like, but it's not the fair pole. I was like, I know, but it represents the fair pole. I mean, if a ball hits the line down the line, it's a fair ball. If the ball hits the pole down the right field or left field line, it's a fair ball. So it was a nice discussion. While I was depressed about, you know, Carlos Carrasco immediately giving back a one-nothing lead, and then before you know it, they're down two to one. Because Jehan Bay doubles, Omar Narvaez is not Francisco Alvarez, which means he can't block balls in the dirt. That's another thing. Alvarez is so much better defensively than Narvaez. Forget the bat for a second, which is obvious. Why would I waste our time on that? Defensively, and you've seen it just in the few games that Narvaez has played, and obviously the tons of games that Alvarez has played, he's better at knocking that balls, knocking those balls down in the dirt. So he allows Bay to go to third. Marcano gets the RBI single, and little do we know, in the fourth inning against a struggling Mitch Keller, that's your baseball game. I mean, it's crazy. I say it now because I know. But in the fourth inning of this game, where the Met offense has shown a little bit of a pulse over the last few days, let's be honest about that. They scored five runs the night before in a 5-1 win. They scored seven runs, though a lot of it was late. I acknowledge that. You look at the Brave series. They scored how many runs in the finale of this series? Ten. And they lost. Like, the Met offense has been showing a little bit of a pulse. They scored five runs in the game before that, four runs in the game before that. Again, these are not absurd numbers, but they're acceptable, I guess would be the word. Like, they're okay. You can win a game by scoring four of five runs. You can. You score one run, it's very unlikely you're going to win. You can win a one nothing game. We've seen the Mets do it. It's very unlikely. So I naively am sitting there down 2-1 to one in the 5th, thinking, we'll score some runs. We may lose. Because this bullpen sucks, and who knows how far Cookie's going to go. And the truth was, Cookie would only go two-thirds more of an inning because Buck had a very quick hook on him in the fifth inning, which we'll get to in a second. But little did I realize when the Pirates scored those two runs in the fourth that that would be enough. Because the Met offense, after the McNeil home run, and they had a rally put together based on a walk and a hit batsman, and Narvaez grounded out with first and second two out, that was it. Like, they're barely threatened ever again. As far as the handling of Carrasco is concerned, I'll admit it. I didn't love when he took him out in the fifth. There's two outs. There's two on. He just got Santana out. His pitch count is very low. It's 81. And Bach immediately goes to Josh Walker. Now, the thing about Josh Walker is we don't know much about him. We know he's been successful at AAA. We saw him very briefly up here earlier. But sure, why not? Let's see what he's got. I would have pushed Carrasco to get through the fifth inning, but I would have been wrong. Because Josh Walker in that at-bat against Sawinski looked great. And considering Sawinski had the two hits against Carrasco and the home run, Buck obviously looked at the two for two and said, I ain't risking this again. He was right. I was wrong. I admit that. I raised my hand. Because Josh Walker came in and struck him out. And then Josh Walker actually looked okay in the sixth. Gave up a hit. Fell behind Bay. Got a huge double play turned and then got out of it by getting Marcano to pop up. So I guess the good news with Josh Walker is, all right, let's see more from him. His numbers in AAA against lefties were devastating. Like, a true lefty specialist. Obviously tough to be that in this day and age with the three batter minimum. But I think it was like two for 30 down at AAA. Like, really good numbers against left-handed batting. So I think that was a positive, that Josh Walker looked good enough, especially on the strikeout of Sawinski, that you kind of circle his name and say, all right, let's see what he's got. Because you're always looking for that with such a crappy bullpen. Drew Smith even did a fairly decent job dancing through a two-out double against Brian Reynolds, and Brooks rarely got through a leadoff walk. But then you have the offense, and you have the decision Buck made that nobody, Nobody understands. So obviously the Mets do nothing offensively against Mitch Keller. One, two, three in the fifth, one, two, three in the sixth, one, two, three in the seventh before finally Keller's out of the game and the Mets get a crack against this pirate bullpen and another crack against Dory Moretta, who the Mets actually hit the night before. That's when Mark Canna got the huge RBI double. And the Mets had success against the guys that had a really good year for the Pirates out of their bullpen. Mark Vientos is scheduled to lead off the eighth inning. So let's play our game of here are your options. What do you do? Vientos is 0 for 2. He struck out his last at bat. Moretta is really tough against righties. You're leading off the eighth inning down by a run. Here are your options. You can simply let Vientos hit. Absolutely on the table. You want to do that? That is option number one. Now you got four guys on your bench, no catchers, right? So you got better offensive options because usually you have a guy like Tomas Nito sticking on your bench. By the way, congrats on Nito. Cleared waivers. He's at AAA Syracuse. We'll see him again, guaranteed. So you've got Luis Guillorme on your bench. You've got Daniel Vogel back on your bench, who we have not seen in a while. You've got Starling Marte on your bench. And you've got Eduardo Escobar on your bench. If I was ranking the four options, really five options, because one of the options is letting Vientos hit. Here's how I would rank them. All right? Option number one would be Starling Marte, because I'm not going to cut Adams here. He's their best option. He's their best hitter of those five guys. Okay. Starling Marte is number one. Number two. Don't, don't, don't hate me for this. Don't hate me for this. <laughs> Option number two is Daniel Vogelbach. Option number two is Daniel Vogelbach. And the reason why is because as much as we all hate him, he draws walks. He does. You can't deny that. And when you're down by a run leading off the eighth inning, I'd be really happy with a walk. I would be thrilled with a walk. Now, you then have to use someone else to pinch run for him. And that best option is Starling Marte, which goes back to why Marte is your best option because why would you use him to pinch run if you could use him to pinch hit? So Marte one, Vogel back two. Number three to me would be letting Mark Vientos hit. He'd be right there in the middle. Like, ah, young guy, showed you something two nights earlier. He got robbed in the third inning on a sliding catch in right field by Connor Joe. So I put him at number three. Number four, Eduardo Escobar. My last option. The option that makes the least sense is to send up the guy who was in AAA last week and this year has hit 231. That would be the last option. Now, Luis played the night before. He went over for 3. It's not like he is showing you that much offensively. How Buck Showalter decided to go with the worst possible option to pinch it down a run in the eighth inning, I do not understand. So let's not waste time arguing about Vogelback because he wasn't even used. Buck Showalter used the worst possible option. Now, Pete, I could see it in your head. You didn't like me saying Vogelback, which is fine, but wouldn't you agree that Daniel Vogelback is actually a better option than Luis Guillorme in this spot?
2: Yeah, I would have gladly swapped a couple people around, but Guillorme is the last person on the list. I would not give him the bat and say, go get him, kid.
1: And I don't know why Buck did. Like, it makes no sense to me. And then, and and I'm sorry, if you're going to complain about the pitch clock, I say, no, no, no. This is on Guillorme. For Luis Guillorme on a one-two pitch, who's been in the minor leagues, the major league? he understands the pitch clock. He can't get his bearded ass into the batter's box ready to go before the eight-second mark. He's got to go down on a strikeout violation, on a pitch clock violation. Like, what are we doing? And, and this goes back to something I said to you in March. If there are big violations in June, July, August, I'm not going to be angry at the pitch clock. I'm going to be angry at the schmuck that got called for the violation. And so for Luis Guillorme to go down in that out-bat, which we all expected, he wasn't going to get a hit. He wasn't going to get on base, obviously. But for it to end on a pitch clock violation. Oh, Oh, you got to be kidding me. Now, they did get a chance in the eighth inning because Nimmo got hit by a pitch. Alvarez did nothing. McNeil did nothing. They got a one-out double by Tommy Pham in the ninth inning, which was a little bit of a tease. And then Beatty does nothing and Canada does nothing. And the New York Mets manage in the finale of this series in a very important game in my eyes to get three hits. Three hits. And that's why, like I said at the top of the Rico We can complain about this aspect of the team and that aspect of the team. And the truth is, they're not really good at anything. I think that's clear. Their bullpen's not good. The starting pitching is not good. Their offense is inconsistent. And their defense sucks. And their manager doesn't know when to challenge. And the manager doesn't know who to send up as a pinch hitter. Other than that, everything's great. Like, if you take all that stuff away, the offense, the defense, the starting pitching, the bullpen, and the manager, it's great. But all those things suck. And that's why you look at this baseball team. We are now 66 games into the year. And I don't know anymore how you're supposed to convince yourself things are going to turn around. I I don't know how you do it because enough time has gone by now. Enough series have gone by. Enough bad has gone by where it's not about running out of time. It's not about the math because those two things aren't true. They have enough time, and the math has not buried them yet in terms of making the playoffs. The division, that's another story. That's that's long gone. But you look at the team, and you wonder, well, where is it turning, and how is it turning? And this three-game series to Pittsburgh was the cherry on top because they have played bad baseball, bad baseball, not average baseball, bad baseball for majority of this year. And we'll continue to keep our fingers crossed because that's what we do as fans. But it is very difficult to kind of picture how everything we just discussed from just this three-game series is going to magically change. And that's what's so depressing right now as a Met fan. And I closed my scorebook and went upstairs after this game ended. I wasn't too far behind. I kind of finished this one at about, I'd say 5.30, 6 o'clock, so an hour or two after the game ended. And, you know, Jet was asking me a few questions about the team. And I just looked at him. I said, they're not good. They're not good. And he asked a question, a very simple question for a six-year-old, but one that we should all be wondering. Why were they so good last year? And why are they so bad this year? And it's a great question. Because as negative as anyone wanted to be about this team, ah, they're not that good. They're not as good as Atlanta. They're not as good as Philly. Did any of us see this Did any of us think 101 wins to this? Assuming this is it, like this is us. This is the New York Mets. It it is really stunning, and it's depressing. Those would be the two words I use as we head up to the Subway Series. This is a depressing time right now to be a New York Mets fan as they lose two out of three to the Pittsburgh Pirates.
2: Yeah, I would say the one thing I have an issue with is that it's probably the worst time for the Subway Series. You know in years past it's like oh it's a subway series does it still have juice all this other stuff and it always does but like why don't you kick us while we're down like uh, the Mets and the Mets fans don't need this type of pressure in this, well, this short series we, we just don't okay so my one counter to that would be and, I, and I've brought
1: this year up a bunch of times because there have been years where the Mets have struggled it looked like things weren't going to go well and things have turned around Uh, We had that in 2015, obviously, after the Woomer-Flores trade, non-trade, crying, cesspitous trade, and everything turned around. But I mentioned 1999 a lot because 1999 was the year where Steve Phillips decided to cut Bobby V's balls off and fire his coaching staff. That happened in the midst of the Subway Series. So while the Mets lost two out of three to the Yankees that year, the turnaround – for a team that ended up going to the National League Championship Series, occurred in the midst of a Subway Series. Sometimes the Subway Series, as much as there's pressure, and there is from the fan-to-fan combat that we have, sometimes that can turn it all around. Now, I'm not saying it will. I'm not offering this grandiose prediction, but I almost look at the Subway Series being right now as perfect timing. I look at it the opposite, Pete, because I think you go into this playing your worst baseball, feeling like it's rock bottom, and maybe that World Series atmosphere that does come along with the Subway Series, and there is a World Series atmosphere. There's a sold-out crowd. There's electricity in the building. I've always admitted that. Maybe not as much as there was in 1997 or 1998, 1999, but there is that maybe that helps this team turn. Maybe Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander getting, I don't think it's a reprieve, but to many it is, because it's Mets-Yankees, a chance to have that big moment in a big game. Maybe it does help this team turn things around. And if they go out and they win two games against the Yankees and they start to play better baseball, it'll look like that's the case. So I don't necessarily look at Mets-Yankees now with the Mets struggling as the worst thing. Like, I don't think it's the worst thing. And the Yankees aren't playing great baseball either. And the Yankees come in with their own set of issues. It's very different than the Mets. I'll fully acknowledge that. They're in a playoff spot. They have injuries that they could legitimately use as an excuse. We don't, as much as Pete being out sucks. Um, So, I don't know. I don't necessarily think the timing of this is all that bad. But, listen, do I want to be in Citi Field if the Yankees sweep the Mets too straight? It's going to (laughs) suck. That's a that's a tough pill to swallow. But maybe a series like this helps turn it around. Now, a couple of things before we get more in-depth on the Subway series. Buck Showalter, according to Newsday, had a team meeting, closed-door meeting. And the way I read it was it was after the game Friday, not before the game. Because if it was before the game Friday, boy, oh, boy, that meeting looked bad. He should be fired <laughs> based on the performance. But apparently, Buck had this meeting with the players. After the game. Now, here are some of the comments from players about what Buck said. We'll start with Mark Hanna. He said what needed to be said. We all know it's not acceptable. There needs to be a higher standard. It needs to come from within. It's not anything that you can point to and say this is the reason or that's the reason. You have to dig deep within yourself. Every one of us has to look inside of ourselves and demand more out of us, more focus, more attention to detail. Here's what Lindor said. It's time to go. It's time to stop messing around and be accountable. He said many good quotes that resonate with me and with my teammates. It's time to evaluate ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirrors and just put it together. Put it together and get going. Uh I'm glad he had a meeting. I hope he was negative and ripped everybody a new ass. Like I think that's a good thing because sometimes The ease, the nice, easy love, the I'm proud of you after getting swept by the Braves rhetoric doesn't work. Sometimes you need to be the bad guy. Sometimes you need to say what's obvious. Even though everybody in that locker room probably already knows it, sometimes it needs to be said, hey, you guys suck. Hey, get your head out of your asses. Now, how did they respond to that? Even though they won Saturday, I don't think they responded that well because their defense wasn't good on Saturday. The head remained up their ass on Saturday, and they certainly didn't come out and play all that well on Sunday. So I'm glad the meeting took place, but as of right now, we do not have great early returns on, I don't know, the results of the meeting. But I think it was important. Team is not playing well. Rip them a new ass. Now we have Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen did an interview with the New York Post in which, look, all he did was basically reassure us as Met fans that while he cares and he's not happy that the team is playing badly, he's committed to spending and spending until the farm system can develop enough players where they don't have to go out and buy free agents and that he's not one to just blow it up because of a bad start. And, and, and as much as there are going to be Met fans who are going to read Cohen's comments or hear Cohen's comments and say, that's not good enough, I want this, I want that. He's right. He's right about a few things. First of all, blowing it up off of a 31-35 and start is not smart. That's George Steinbrenner. That's the bad of George Steinbrenner. The bad of George Steinbrenner is that he went through managers like it was water. And that rosters that sometimes were flawed, he would blame it on the manager, let's bring in a new voice, that'll change everything. I don't necessarily think that's always the answer. So for him to say, I'm not one to just blow it up when we're struggling. Look, there are going to be times to blow it up. There would be times in which you say, Hey, fire the manager. Hey, we got to change everything. I don't think right now is the time because there ain't much you could do other than fire. The manager can't change the entire roster. And he's right about something else, which is why they need to develop players in their farm system, which is when you go out and buy free agents, More times than not, it doesn't work that well. Like, we could all kill Verlander and kill Scherzer. There were not a lot of better options based on results right now. Carlos Redon hasn't thrown a baseball yet. And Steve brought that up. He's right. Jacob deGrom, I love the guy and I feel bad for him, had Tommy John surgery. That did not work. So I think what we're seeing is, is another reason why you have to develop guys in your system. And I think position player-wise, they have. That's why I remain steadfast that this lineup, while it sucked on Sunday and has been wildly inconsistent, I think their lineup will eventually be okay. And they've developed guys that way. Pitching-wise, they have nothing. The cupboard is empty. Hence why they decided to go out and rely on aging veterans In this rotation, not just Verlander and Scherzer, but obviously the other veterans in this rotation that they're relying on. So for anyone who wanted Cohen to come out and be Steinbrenner and threaten jobs, I, I get I get why you want it. I get why the red meat makes you feel good. Give me blood. I don't think that blood does a damn thing, in my opinion. So were you annoyed with what Steve had to say, Pete? Are you content? Were you happy? Uh, what's your thoughts?
2: I I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm happy. I wouldn't say I'm ecstatic. Um, But I will say this. And it's, it's like a double-edged sword when it comes to Billy Epler, too. It's kind of like a pass to him with what Steve Cohen said because Billy Epler, he's not going to be able to make trades because... He's not going to give up prospects. He's not going to have that opportunity to go make a big splash. So this is, I think you said this last podcast, this is the team. This is what we have. We're, we're not going to get much better than this. So they just got to find a way to turn around. And, and if that, for that, there's not much you could do. You could fire Buck, but that's not going to really help anyway. That's the problem. This is it. The, the strategy
1: right now is hope (laughs) that that's pretty much it. Igor wrote a great email to the gmail.com. I want to read every word of it because I think it's detailed, it's researched, and I think it's fascinating. And it goes into a deeper detail on something we talked about earlier with Mark Vientos. So, Igor, the floor is yours as I read your email. What they've done to Vientos is insane. Here's how crazy it is. Vientos played against the Tampa Bay Rays on May 17th. Had a huge home run to tie the game. The next day, May 18th, benched. He plays on May 19th and has a clutch RBI single in extras that helps them win the game. There's no game on May 20th. On May 21st, he plays the second game of a doubleheader. There's no game on May 22nd. On May 23rd, he only gets two at-bats and is subbed out for Vogelback. On May 24th, benched. On May 25th, benched. He's used for one-at-bat as a pinch hitter. May 26th, benched, used for one-at-bat as a pinch hitter. So let's summarize. He's on fire, killing righties and lefties in the minors. He gets called up, and first game hits an enormous home run everyone thinks will turn the season around. From May 17th to May 26th, that's 10 days, Vientos starts only three and a half games. That is absolutely insane. In 10 games, he gets a total of 15 at-bats. 15 at-bats in 10 days. It is complete and utter malpractice. Igor brings up an amazing point, an excellent point. The handling of Mark Vientos has made no sense. None. And even now, with Pete Alonso on the injured list and another slot opening up, for him to get an opportunity to get at bats he is still being blocked out now again on sunday or i should say saturday it worked like i'll admit it tommy Pham hit mark canna hit so the results worked on saturday which makes you say yeah it's fine but it's not fine in developing this kid in seeing what he is we have now seen what francisco alvarez is and it's damn good he is not only the catcher for this team. He may be the all star for this team. And it's on the table. Now, I want to make something very clear. Pete and I are very familiar with the subject, so we're going to just nip it in the butt right now so that there's no debate about this. Do not tell your friends or call up Sports Talk Radio and say Francisco Alvarez can win rookie of the year. He cannot. All right. Corbin Carroll will win rookie of the year. It's not a knock on Francisco Alvarez. It's just that. That ain't happening. So let's just stick with he may go to the all-star game. He's awesome. But it happened because he played. Now, Brett Beatty plays just about every day, and he hasn't taken off. Like, we'll admit it. We'll raise our hand. Beatty still has a lot of work to do. His average is hovering around 230. But when you call these kids up, you have to play them. And I think Igor brings up a great point. It was malpractice and has been malpractice. On how they've used Mark Vientos,
2: not fair to him at all. Igor nailed it on the head, and still to this day, like I just I don't understand what. How do you bring up the kids and just have the goal to sit there and sit them when everyone is anemic, everyone's anemic, and you have a guy that like was killing it, and let's just bench him again. It's so it's like. You're you're damaging him, but also you're not helping the team out either. You're giving more shots to Guillaume. Yeah, it, it's, it sucks
1: because I think we all wanted Vientos up here, but you can't play him like this. It's not fair to him. You know, most kids who come up are not going to learn and produce if they're playing in that kind of sporadic kind of way. Andrew Wass writes, I'm sitting in Pittsburgh in the bottom of the eighth inning, and I thought maybe I'd been hit in the head by a foul ball and knocked unconscious. Luis Guillorme just came in to pinch hit for Mark Vientos. Please make it make sense. Then, of course, he strikes out in the worst possible way, a pitch clock violation. Whatever they did when they demoted him clearly broke Luis Guillorme because he can't field and he can't hit. He can't even get in the batter's box. WTF, Andrew. Uh, Let me defend him defensively. That was a transfer play. A transfer play, I tell (laughs) you. Howie writes, Evan and Pete, say what you want about how inconsistent Kodai Senga's been. He has still been the Mets' best pitcher this season, and he's also adjusting to the MLB, a completely new language culture. Howie's right. Like, we sit here 66 games into the year. Who's been the Mets' best starting pitcher? If you had to answer that question, how
2: is it not Kodai Senga? It is, right? Yeah, no question. It's, it's definitely Kode A 1,000%. It's just not that great, though. It's been so st- still inconsistent.
1: Yep, no doubt. Dan Gavin writes, uh, they find ways to lose. Big fan of the podcast, uh, unfortunate, pathetic sweep in Atlanta. The night of the 13-10 loss, before listening to the pod, I said to a friend, the 2022 Mets found ways to win. When they were down, you always had a feeling that a comeback could happen, and it often did. When the 23 Mets are winning, not losing, you always have a feeling they're going to blow the game. You hit the nail on the head, the team finds ways to lose. The second half of the episode largely focused on what, if any, solutions could come from this. I'm losing patience with Buck and Epler, though I do blame Epler more than Buck for a negligent bullpen and lineup construction this season. Andrew Chafin was available all offseason. Vogelbach and, Ruff, Vogelbach and Ruff obviously didn't get us where we wanted to be, and putting all the stock in the rookies to make the difference in the lineup was always a risky bet. But for all the problems, I think Jeremy Hefner isn't talked about enough, either on the pod or in the media. Hefner has overseen a dramatic decrease in production in the Mets' rotation and bullpen. McGill and Peterson have taken dramatic regressions, back to worse play than we've ever seen from either of them, in a year we needed them both to take a step forward to join the rotation. He needs to be answering for these problems, not necessarily Buck or Epler just yet. Good point by Dan. We talk about changes and what can be made, and I've brought up the coaching stuff. I've brought up the 99 comparison of what Steve Phillips did with Bobby Valentine. The regression pitching-wise, which I think we'd agree is their biggest issue, like their biggest issue is their starting pitching has been some of the worst in Major League Baseball. Their bullpen has been some of the worst in Major League Baseball. Obviously, with Verlander and Scherzer, you can look at age. You can look at health. With Carrasco, you can look at age. You can look at health. Sanga's making an adjustment. Quintana hasn't pitched. But Tyler McGill has gone backwards. David Peterson, more than anybody, has gone backwards. So, you can't fire an entire rotation. Do you start to look closer at Jeremy Hefner? Look, if they announce tomorrow... They're making a change at pitching coach. Now, the problem is who's the replacement and is it actually going to make any kind of difference? And does that guy have a past relationship with all these arms that need to improve? It may be more symbolic than anything, but I totally get Dan's point about the failures of Jeremy Hefner. Let's get to the rotation in terms of how it's handled over the next few days. So they don't play Monday. They don't play Thursday. Tuesday will be Scherzer. Wednesday will be Verlander. The Yankees will counter in all likelihood with Severino and Garrett Cole uh, for Tuesday, Wednesday. So great pitching matchup should be a lot of fun. Then for the weekend against the Cardinals, here are your options. And I'll tell you what I would do. On Friday, they've got three options. They've got Kodai Senga on five days' rest. That's an extra day. They've got Tyler McGill on six days rest. That's two extra days. Or they could bring back Carlos Carrasco on regular rest the Mets have not thrown a lot of their starting pitchers on regular rest to me because I want to win baseball games and I think the regular rest thing can be completely overrated Carlos Carrasco to me should pitch Friday night number one after the way Senga struggled on his first normal rest game I understand it and I think within reason you will look to find ways to pitch Senga with an extra day or two Obviously, Senga already has an extra day, but if he pitches Friday with the Mets playing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that would mean Senga would have to come back on regular rest for a game against the Astros. I'd prefer not. So I would go Carrasco Friday on regular rest. Your options for Saturday would be Kodai Senga with six days rest, Tyler McGill with seven days rest. I'd go with Senga. Senga would pitch Saturday. Then I'd bring Scherzer back on Sunday on four days rest and Verlander back on Monday against the Astros on regular rest. This allows you to pitch Carrasco on Tuesday and then McGill on Wednesday, and you could push Senga to the Philadelphia Phillies series. That's how I would do it. Push McGill back because despite how average Carrasco was in the game on Sunday, if I'm ranking who I want to see less of, the guy I want to see less of right now is Tyler McGill.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, I I get it, but you're you're expecting Scherzer to t- do a quick turnaround. You said, is that regular rest for Scherzer? Regular or, rest or or a, all right? I mean, I guess.
1: Come if on, it's regular
2: rest, and I can live with that. But
1: yeah, listen, It's regular rest. Here's, come on, I, pitch. They suck. <laughs> They're not good. That's my that's that's the problem. Well, who who is good? I mean, they, they, it's not like they've got amazing <laughs> options here. Uh, we'll, we'll see how they handle it. They they actually could, if they want, send McGill down, though I think they should have already done it. Like, they should have done it on um on uh, Saturday because you don't need them. Like, you could go a couple of weeks without Tyler and McGill and actually add another reliever in your bullpen, but they haven't done it the last few days, so I'm not sure that they will. But those are the options going into the Subway Series. Obviously, the Subway Series is set. Like, you know they're going Scherzer Verlander, but how you handle those three games against St. Louis, another underachieving team, uh, that's really based on how important you think rest is for each of these guys. Remember, the Mets have another off day the following week on Thursday after they play the Astros. So it's not going to be an easy couple of weeks for the Mets. You play the Yankees, who are struggling but above 500. You play the Cardinals, who I'm still waiting, are going to get hot at some point. You play three games in Houston against the Astros off day and then three games in Philadelphia against the Phillies. And what scares me about the Phillies is that the Mets have owned them so much the last couple of years, that's bound to change. That's bound to change in an epic, epic, epic way. Ah, oh, boy. What a, what a fun time to be alive, isn't it? Mets keep losing series. They're under 500. they They're closer to last place than first place. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the way we had it all drawn up. It's exactly the way we expected it. Uh, But we do appreciate you downloading and listening as we go through this 162-game gauntlet. You can obviously email the pod to gmail.com. Appreciate all the emails that come in throughout the game. I can't check my email now during a MET game because now I get live in-game analysis to the Rico Brony email. And so since I'm DVRing a lot of games, now I got another thing I need to avoid (laughs) when I'm DVRing games. Uh, but it should be a fun week. I'll be at both games out at City Field and we'll do a couple of drive homes. We'll do a drive home after Tuesday's game, we'll be a drive home after Wednesday's game, and we'll give you an extra pod. We'll finally do it this week, reevaluating the offseason and all the moves that could have been made, should have been made, and thank God they weren't made. But we do appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronya. We'll talk to you soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Of the Rico Bronio podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.